All right, man, I'm telling you, this is the crowd that I've been waiting for. If you are here and excited to be here this morning at Cornerstone Church, put your hands together. Let's make some noise with a loud, rowdy crowd. That's right. I'll tell you what, if I, were to, if, if I had the opportunity to come to church at this time of day, I would do it all day long. I mean, how many of you guys love coffee? Raise your hands. You can drink like three not three cups, we're talking like three whole pots of coffee before you get here, have a late breakfast, maybe have a brunch and you're ready to roll. I'm excited to be with you guys. My name is Scott Rogers and I want to thank Pastor Lynn for inviting me to come out here to kick off this series in the book of Galatians. I'm stoked. My question is, how many of you guys want to have church as usual today? Just kind of flat, no excitement, no passion, blah, blah, blah. That's right. One guy. Thank you, just one guy. That's a bold young man right there. How many of you guys are saying, hey, I want to leave different today than when I came? Anybody? All right. See, I get to loosen up a little bit. The, you know, we're not broadcasting to the Santan campus, which has been a blast all morning. And uh, some just can exhale, get a little loose. I might say a few things, but, you know, only this kind of crowd can actually take it in. So just get ready and do not tweet what I say because it might cause some damage to Pastor Lynn at some point in time. Obviously, I'm just kidding, but if you have a Bible, turn it to Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to kick off a brand new series today on the book of Galatians, and I want to read kind of a foundational verse for you this morning as we get into this thing, and here's what it is. It's in, uh, it's in uh, chapter 2, verse 20, and it says, Paul writing, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. July 16, 1999, John F. Kennedy Jr., his wife and sister-in-law, hop in a six-seater Piper Saratoga small aircraft. JFK Jr. is the pilot, and they depart from Essex County, New Jersey, toward their destination of Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. Some of you remember the situation. JFK, his wife Carolyn, and sister-in-law Lauren never made it alive. Their plane crashed into the Atlantic Ocean. That was their last day on this planet. The National Transportation Safety Board began to investigate and found the cause of the crash to be what they said was spatial disorientation, something that you and I may know as vertigo. I'm not a pilot. I don't understand it fully, but as a layman, here's my understanding of what happens in vertigo. They say that when a pilot is flying under what's called uh, visual flight rules, basically they're navigating only by what they can see with their eye. And everything is based on the horizon. So we get your perspective on seeing the horizon, whether we're tilting this direction, turning in that direction, and so forth. Under poor weather conditions or other circumstances, such as flying over a big body of water in the darkness of night with no moonlight, all of a sudden the horizon disappears and the sky meets the earth and it all becomes one and you lose perspective on where the horizon is. Under foggy, rainy conditions, the sky can turn white, I'm told, and you just can't see where you're going, and therefore you don't know what's going on. What is up and what is down, I don't know. And I guess during vertigo, when it happens, is that if you're flying by visual, you can begin to, and you cannot see the horizon, you begin to turn just a little bit in any direction, and and 
immediately you can kind of sense it. There's this fluid in our inner ear canal that when, when that moves, we can see, oh, we're off balance a little bit. And we, we know that. But I understand it that if you're turning just a little bit, about 20 seconds into that very slight deviation, your inner ear canal, that fluid levels back off and you have no idea that you're continuing the turn. So what happens is, let's say a pilot is turning to their left and their, their inner ear canal now just kind of levels off and they think that they're now back going straight and you tend to try to bring the wings back level while still turning left and all of a sudden the centrifugal force makes you feel like you're banking to the hard right. What's the natural response? Crank it even more to the left. And I guess what happens is they do what's called the graveyard spiral and spiral the plane out of control and crash right into the grounds. The National Transportation Safety Board concluded that that's what happened to JFK flying that small aircraft. He experienced vertigo and plunged right into the Atlantic Ocean. It doesn't take long as we look at this book of Galatians to realize as you read through the six short chapters that something is wrong. In fact, I'd say, looking at the book of Galatians, it becomes apparent immediately that something is horribly wrong. Horribly wrong. Paul the Apostle, who wrote this, actually started a whole bunch of churches in this area called Galatia. Modern-day Turkey, actually, is where it is. And he starts these vibrant churches, and how he's keeping up with what's going on in this region, I don't know. He's, maybe he's in Jerusalem or he's somewhere else. Someone's coming to tell him, give him reports on these, these brand new startup churches and how it's going. But I would wonder if, okay, let's say if he, if he had Facebook back in that day, or he had Twitter back in that day, I can imagine him sitting with a cup of coffee early in the morning on his computer and just kind of checking that, the, the Twitter feed or the Facebook posts, and he notices some folks from the area of Galatia, and they're saying things like, for a while, they're like, man, God is moving in our church. He is transforming lives. Like, man, 42 people got baptized at Third Church of Jesus in Galatia last weekend. Like, good stuff is happening. John and Janie Smith, their marriage was actually saved because they surrendered it to Christ and he brought them back together. Whoa, like. The whole city came together and started to pray and trying to figure, to get wisdom from God, trying to seek some answers on this whole situation. Why in the world did they do it? Why did they do it? Hashtag trade. Hashtag Justin Upton. Trying to figure it out. He sees all this great stuff going on from these churches in Galatia. And then all of a sudden, he begins to notice something else comes through. And the Twitter feed says, I love Jesus. I'm getting circumcised. He's like, what? Kind of does a double take and think, what? what? Circumcised? You don't have to do that. What's going on? I better look into this a little further. So he does a search on there. Hashtag circumcision. A whole list. People in Galatia are saying, man, Jesus is the way. Now I'm ready to take that step of circumcision. What? Somebody else posts, I'm so on fire for God. I think I have the boldness now. I'm ready to go for it. I guess it's not that bad. Circumcision. I'm going under the blade. Erase that image from your mind. What's happening in these churches in Galatia is that they're beginning this vibrant relationship with Christ, understanding the grace of God, that it's, it's Jesus is everything here, 
But someone is coming in, well-meaning people from Jerusalem who are probably followers of Christ but were raised in an Old Testament Jewish setting where they had to do all these rules and regulations and so therefore they're bringing these into their new relationship with Christ and they're teaching other people to do the same. And Paul is livid. If you read through sometime later in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, he literally says things like, why are you so quickly turning away from the God who saved you? Who is in your midst twisting the truth? I mean, he's, he's, I, I, could say, I can say this as his cornerstone church. Paul is, no, I better not say it. Paul is ticked. He even says things like, hey, whoever's teaching this to you, I don't care if it's an angel from heaven or somebody else. May God curse them for teaching this stuff to you. That's, that's pretty combatant language, don't you think? And he, he does it for emphasis. He says it again, let them be cursed. It's like, whoa, dude, stand down, man. Chill out. This is okay. But Paul understands that when this stuff starts to creep in, this whole idea of, yes, Jesus, and anything else, Spiritual disorientation takes place. You begin to lose perspective of what the truth is and what the message of Jesus is all about. And you lose that horizon and it all kind of gets meshed together. And before you know it, one degree at a time, you're off course, you're off course. Before you know it, you're spiraling into religion and tradition and good works. And Paul is like the warning signs going up. I've got to do something and I have to do it now. So he just kind of lays into them. In those first few verses. It's really amazing. Read this book as you guys go through this series. It's interesting for us because, you know, we can read through the book and think, gosh, we know the end from the beginning. So we have this perspective that we see this whole deal. But I don't know about you, but I often I'll read through my Bible and different accounts and scenarios and stories and stuff. And sometimes as I'm reading through it, looking at how people are responding to what God's doing. And I often think, man, what are they smoking? How could they be so dumb? Have you ever thought that? Or am I the only one? Well, what are they smoking here? Like, don't, can't they see this? Think about it with me for just a second. Eve, you are reasoning with a snake. Have you ever thought that was weird? Strange? Balaam, your donkey is talking to you telling you that you're being disobedient to God. Did it ever cross your mind that this is a supernatural occurrence and God may be trying to get your attention? What are you smoking? Pay attention. David, for those of you guys who are familiar with scripture, David, this guy's binoculars out, right? Oh man, she's smoking hot. She should probably take a bath behind closed doors, but she's not. She's on the roof. And man, David, She's not your property, and you're a creeper. Dude, don't you get this? Are you missing something here? Samson, didn't your mother ever tell you don't marry a Kardashian? It doesn't last. Come on, boy. Get some wisdom here. What are they smoking? Circumcision. Google it. See what comes up. What are you smoking here? So it's easy for us to look in and say, how in the world did they get off course one little degree at a time? For those of you who are here uh, at our five o'clock service tonight, I want you to turn with us as well to Galatians chapter one and verse 10. 
because Paul begins to expose what I'm seeing as a driving force for something here. And here's what he says in chapter 1, verse 10. After just laying into him, like, let him be cursed, whoever this, this idiot is, literally. And he says, obviously, in verse 10, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servants. Here's what's jumping out at me as I went over this, thinking of this whole vertigo thing. If you're the kind of likes to take notes and, and by writing things down, you might want to write this down, that spiritual vertigo happens when we live for the approval of others more than living from the approval of God. What's happening here is people are trying to be accepted into the clique and they're trying to win the approval of other people by saying yes to their stuff, yes to the, the rules and regulations. You know what? Jesus is great. However, add this to it. Oh, okay, I want to fit in. I want to be part of the family. I'll do that stuff. And Paul is just saying, hey, obviously, if I, if I were trying to please people in this whole deal, I would not be a servant of God. Interesting. I think we all, let's be honest, let's not try to fake this thing and be unrealistic. We all want the approval of other people. I mean, we wear deodorant and brush our teeth, right? So there's a level of healthy desire when it comes to the approval of other people. Some of you sitting next to someone saying, oh, they didn't, I'm not approving of them right now. They didn't, no, forget that. But we do, it's a, it's a, there's a healthy level. But when it gets to the point where it's so strong that our driving force begins to be seeking the approval of others, even superseding living from God's approval in our life, we can go one degree at a time this way and all of a sudden just spiral into this religious, people-pleasing kind of stuff. Now, maybe it's only me and you've never had the desire to please people, but I can look back and see a catalytic moment in my life. I was about 11 years old. My dad would get home at 3.30 every afternoon from work. He was a welder. He'd get home at 3.30 and he'd have two things in his hands. One would be an empty toolbox and the other would be a six-pack of beer. Actually, by that time, it was a five-pack. So he drank one on the way home and he'd come inside, he'd sit down at the kitchen table and he'd polish off these five beers that were left over and at about 6 p.m., he'd head back to the store to get another six-pack. And I always wondered, like, Dad, why don't you just think this through? A little more efficiency here. Why don't you just buy a 12-pack when you get out of work and do it all in one, one, one take? I'd imagine, though, at about 6 o'clock, he just wanted to get out of the house for whatever reason. And he would polish off anywhere between 12 and 16, 18 beers a night. So obviously, I'm growing up with an alcoholic father. I knew it. My sister knew it. My mom knew it. The challenge was, so did everybody else. One day when I was 11 years old, I'm riding my bike to a friend's house. I'm driving down this little dirt road. I grew up in Michigan. And I'm driving down, riding down this little dirt road, go up to the driveway, and all my buddies are hanging out in front of the garage of this house. And I come down the driveway, about from here to about 100 feet away, and the father, my friend's dad, walks out of the garage and he says, hey guys, look who's coming. It's Scott, son of the town drunk. Just yells it out. That's how I felt too. It's almost like he just kind of pulled back the bow and arrow and just, just went right through me. 11-year-old kid, a dad who struggled, 
who's living in pain, a normal human being trying to figure things out, but I felt this sense of shame in front of my friends. And I'll tell you what, it was in that moment that I really began to work hard at pleasing people because I felt unaccepted. And for years and years, even, even it trickles into my spiritual life and even what I do today, there's this drive that if I'm not careful, I will live more for the approval of other people than from anything God thinks about me. It's interesting because it creeps in little by little. And maybe for you, it's a huge deal and you know it and no one even has to say it, but you're living for the approval of people so much so that you just, you just can't hide it. You can't hide it. Or maybe it's not that clear to you, but as you really think about it, you think, oh, I did that to get the approval of this person, that person, and it just kind of gets into manipulation and things like that. But this spiritual vertigo, it happens that way when we start to live more for the approval of other people than living from the approval of God. It's a really, really deceptive thing. And Paul sees it. And he says, hey, if I'm trying to live for the approval of people, I'm not going to be able to be Christ's servant. And he goes to continually unpack this whole deal in the book of Galatians as you read it later. It's pretty amazing. Like in chapter 2 in the beginning, he, he illustrates it by using a scenario where he ran into the apostle Peter in this place called Antioch. It's, it's incredible. Okay, think of this. For those of you guys who've read the Bible a few times, the apostle Peter, right? The guy that walked on water for at least a few seconds. The guy who's prayed for people who are paralyzed and sees them completely healed and getting up and running around. The guy who walked with Jesus for a few years and saw him multiply food for thousands of people. The guy who was trying to fish one day and he casts his net and he's out Lake Havasu and there's no fish jumping in and Jesus comes by and says, hey, throw it on the other side of the boat and he does that and, I'll, and then there's so many fish jumping all over the place the net begins to, to rip. This is Jesus who saw, or Peter who saw Jesus hang on the cross, be buried, and then later, sitting with the guys eating dinner, sees Jesus walk through a wall to say, what's up, guys? This is Peter who saw Jesus ascend into heaven, saw Jesus resurrected. Peter who preached at Pentecost, and thousands of people come to Christ after the Spirit of God pours out on the earth. Okay, I think you get the idea. Paul says, you know, I saw Peter in Antioch, and I had to call him out had to call him on the carpet. What he was doing is he's hanging out with a bunch of brand new believers who were non-Jewish. And they're hanging out at the Cheesecake Factory, enjoying that really good chicken Madeira dish. I always like to talk, to talk about food to late crowds. You're like, oh, you're killing me, dude, shut up. And they're hanging out, having a great time, and Peter's excited about their, their faith in Christ and their, the redemption that God's doing in their life because of what Jesus did, solely because of that. But yet, a few people walk in that are kind of from the denominational headquarters, and, and Paul says Peter distanced himself from them as if he didn't want to give off the wrong image, that he was hanging around the wrong people doing the wrong stuff. And Paul says, Peter is a hypocrite. Apostle Peter, he calls out on this deal. So here we have Peter living for the approval of other people. You and I are not um, invincible to this. We are very, very, very susceptible. So he unpacks that scenario and he says, so here's the deal. Here's why you no longer need to live for the approval of other people, but you can live from the approval of God. Look back at our verse in Galatians 2, verse 20, and let's read through it again. And here's, here's what he says. Here's why. 
Peter says, or Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, there's a lot in there. I think, gosh, especially if you haven't read scripture much before, you might be thinking, man, there's a lot of jargon in there. What's that mean? So let me read to you from a translation, the message translation, which I love because it's very robust. It kind of peels back the curtain and gives you a little more imagery to what he's trying to say here. So here's what it says, message translation. Paul says, indeed, I've been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. Interesting, huh? My ego is no longer central. It's no longer important that I appear righteous. If you're unfamiliar with the word righteous, basically righteous means in right standing with God. As if you were holy enough and pleasing enough for a supremely holy God to say, yeah, come into my presence because you qualify. That's what righteous means. So he says, it's no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. And I am no longer driven to impress God. Oh, just take a breath for a second. You and I no longer have to be driven to impress God. I know I probably don't need to say this, but you really can't impress God. You know what I mean? The lady's just saying, yeah, I know. Look who I'm married to. Just kidding. (laughs) How do you recover from that? Keep going. I am no longer driven to impress God. Then he says, here's the deal. Christ lives in me. That's that spiritual reality for those of us who are followers of Jesus. This crazy deal that Christ lives in us by his spirit. Then he says, the life you see me living, it's not mine. But it's, lit, but it's lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, if you're taking notes, just write this down. There's nothing left to prove. Nothing. Nothing left to prove. You and I have nothing to prove to God because we can't prove anything to him. We really have nothing to prove to the people around us. Imagine, imagine living life from God's approval, knowing, hey man, he already accepts me, he already forgives me, he already loves me, he already affirms me, I am everything to him, he is my heavenly father, he is my daddy, I can run into his lap anytime I want, he will fully embrace me, he's always there for me, he'll never leave me, he'll never forsake me, and we can live from that posture, from that place. I want to feed the poor. Absolutely we do. Not for anyone's approval. Not for anyone's, not for a pat on the back. But we feed the poor because we're living from God's approval. How could we not help to help people? We're living from that place. Imagine being able to live a a life with nothing to prove and you just serve people and love others unconditionally because that's who God is for you and for me. I know that's not easy to do. It's tough because we still have this thing called sin and the flesh that we live in. But imagine being in that place free enough to love others, not needing approval, but it's just because God approves of me. So I want to do this. We have nothing left to prove. So Paul goes on, he continues to kind of state this case. He says in the very next verse, in Galatians 2, verse 21, check it out. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness, there's that word again, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. That first statement's crazy. Basically, he's saying, hey, if you want to add anything to Jesus to be approved by God, 
you have put aside God's grace. You've literally, he says later, you've fallen from grace. That's a pretty scary thought, isn't it? To fall away from God's grace. He says, if anything can be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. How many of you guys here went through high school? Raise your hand real, real tall. Real, okay. Come on, put your hand back down. A third of you went to high school. I think it's a little different than that. Let's see. How many of you guys, do it again. How many of you guys went through high school? Put your hand up. Okay, put your hand down. How many of you guys are currently in high school? A few of you. All right. Woo, what grade are you in? 12th seniors. Are you graduating in a couple weeks? Nice. What school? Hamilton? All right. Hamilton's black and yellow colors, aren't they? All right, gotcha. All right, ready to roll. So, I was the guy in high school who I didn't think, I really believed this. I mean, I was convinced there was not a single class in high school that was relevant to my future. Now, educators, hold on, because I know I was horribly wrong. So you're one of the hardest working people on the planet. So I, I realized this was a totally poor perspective. But I didn't believe any class in high school was going to help me at any point in the future of my life. And the one that was the worst of the worst of the worst that I could not even get was algebra. Yeah, I know. Algebra. I thought, man, there's nothing in this class that's going to equate to any productivity, any benefit for the rest of my life. It's just a total waste of my time. I just, and I don't understand. So day after day after day after day, whenever it was a test or a paper, I get a D after D after D after E. Every now and then I peek to an E. Didn't, didn't get it. And didn't choose, actually, to get it. But when I read through this book of Galatians in this context, I think the answer to not getting in spiritual vertigo and losing perspective on the horizon, therefore spiraling out of control, it's a mathematical answer. And I'm all proud of myself because I've never given a mathematical answer before. I'm like, yes, oh, I feel so intelligent. Just want you guys to know this is the kind of people Lynn brings in, guys who get D's and stuff like that. <laughs> but here it is. Let me read something in Galatians uh, 2.21 again, and let me just reiterate it. He says, I don't set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Here's my mathematical equation for this issue. And the, is, is this, Jesus plus the cross plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus the cross plus anything anything in addition to that to win the approval of God is absolutely nothing. You've fallen from God's grace. Jesus plus the cross, circumcision. They don't even think about that. Even the good stuff, volunteering at my church, investing in changed lives through my giving, uh, helping to feed the poor, helping to sponsor kids through World Vision or Compassion, whatever it is, it's all phenomenal, God-oriented, kingdom-building stuff. But yet if we add anything to Jesus plus the cross for our approval before God, it equals nothing. Paul says we've fallen from grace. Interesting. Now here's the other side of the equation. Check out Galatians 6, verse 14, just real quick. If you have it, turn there. Maybe it's on your mobile device. You can scroll down. He says in verse 14, chapter 6, As for me, may I never boast about anything, what? 
accept the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified and the world's interest in me has also died. So here's my mathematical solution to spiritual vertigo, religion, all this kind of stuff is that Jesus plus the cross plus nothing. Jesus plus the cross plus nothing. It's an awkward feeling, isn't it? Jesus plus the cross plus what can I do? What can I do in addition to Jesus to be approved by God? Nothing. Isn't it weird how it's in our nature to try to perform for somebody? Well, thank you for loving me unconditionally, but let me just do something to perform because I know deep down inside you really don't approve of me because that's how, how my life works. But Jesus plus the cross plus nothing equals everything. Everything. Maybe some of this terminology is unfamiliar to you. Let me try to explain briefly what the cross did or what happened on the cross. Later on, you could check out a verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And it says this, it says that he made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus himself. Jesus was the only person on the planet. He was human, he was divine at the same time. I'll let Lynn unpack that for you another time, and I'm sure he has. Jesus is the only sinless person on the planet. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. So literally, on the cross, God spiritually and supernaturally took all of our, even, even when we weren't born, he took all of history and the future and the sin of his creation and put it on Jesus on the cross and then took his righteousness, his holiness, his spiritual perfection and gave it to us as a gracious gift so that we can stand before God completely righteous in his sight only because of Christ on the cross. That's what happened on the cross. He made him who knew no sin to be our sin for us so that we could become his righteousness. Incredible. Jesus plus the cross plus, now you see why anything else is just ridiculous, right? As if we could perform our way to more acceptance by God. A couple weeks ago on Friday, I believe it was May 10th, a whole bunch of people are standing at the base of the One World Trade Center in New York City. They're cheering and they're applauding because something is going on that's pretty significant. The One World Trade Center on the outside is almost done and they're, they're, they're hoisting up this 408-foot spire to go on top of the One World Trade Center. And you don't have to be around for long to realize, okay, the 9-11 thing back in 2001, horrific thing that is literally rocked our nation for over a decade now. And they're putting up this 408-foot spire on top of One World Trade Center as they rebuilt that thing. And if you guys know, if you've read the, the paper or saw it in the news, what, what is, how high is it from the ground, uh, the ground to the top of that spire? 1,776 feet. Do you think that was a mistake? Not at all. Do you think that that spire is just for decoration in regard to how high it is? Mm -mm. 
That spire, I would suggest, is not merely decoration, but it's a declaration. And I would say as a nation, it's a declaration that basically says this again. I want to read it so that I don't mistake it. It says, this is what we declare. This is why it's 1,776 feet tall. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That 1,776 feet is a declaration that says, it doesn't matter who does something to us, you're not going to knock us down, we're going to get back up, this is what we're about, this is what we stand for, that is our declaration, and there you go, baby, right there, 1,776 feet. It's a declaration. How does a pilot avoid going into vertigo? What do they look at? Their instruments. My understanding is that most pilots are not trained to use instruments in aviation. Most of them are by visual flight rules. The few that are trained to use instruments such as those who flew me from Folsom, California, down here to Sky Harbor just yesterday, or from Sacramento, actually, and who fly you all over the world, those are the experts that can use the instruments. And when a, when a pilot is in a situation where they feel out of balance or things can kind of get, like, where, where's the horizon they cannot see and there's poor weather or it's a dark sky in a, in, a, in a black ocean, I'm not sure where I am. Even no matter how they feel, pilots are over and over and over trained to follow the instruments, trust the instruments, no matter what. 1,776 feet. It's a declaration. Trust your instrument so that no matter how it feels, when life hits you in every direction, they can just look at the gauges and stay level because of the instruments. The next time you hang a cross on the wall of your entryway, around your neck, on your graphic t-shirt, or as a bumper sticker, whatever it is, Whatever it is, look to that cross. That's our instrument. That when religion tries to creep in, when the approval for others begins to creep in, or the desire to be a people pleaser begins to creep in, or an insecurity about where do I stand with my Heavenly Father begins to creep in, look to the instrument, regardless of how we feel, and say, that's it. I'm looking to the cross. Level it out. Level it out. Scripture says in Hebrews, what? Look into the author and finisher of our faith. Be fixated on Christ. And when you look at that cross as your instrument, imagine if JFK Jr. was trained to use instruments and he had it in that aircraft. He wouldn't be another Kennedy statistic. He'd still be alive. We can maintain a vibrant relationship with Christ by looking at the instrument, looking at the cross and staying oriented spiritually not only is it our instrument but I want to say this that that cross like that spire on one world trade center it's not just for decoration but it is you see where I'm going it's our declaration 
It's your declaration. If you are someone who call yourself a Christian, that cross, that instrument to maintain spiritual perspective, that's not just a declaration. It's our declaration. And I would say it this way. We hold these truths as a believer in Christ. We hold these truths to be self-evident. I have been crucified with Christ. My ego, it's no longer central. It's no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. I'm no longer driven to impress God. Why? Because Christ lives in me. Jesus plus the cross plus nothing. It's everything. That's what some people would call the gospel, the message of Jesus. We do not have to live for the approval of others. We will live from the approval of God. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and we're going to pray. Father God, we celebrate this reality today. No matter where we come from, what we've done, what we look like, our heritage, things that uh, we can do, no matter what weaknesses or strengths or gifts or lack of them that we have, when it comes to you and we look at Jesus on the cross, that is completely and entirely sufficient. It's Jesus plus the cross plus nothing that equals everything. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, maybe you're sitting here today and you're a follower of Christ. And it's possible that the approval of others, the desire to, to be approved by others has crept in and is driving some of your motivation. And if we're not careful, we're gonna to begin to go off one degree at a time and spiral into religious things that Paul would say, hey, stop, because it's Christ on the cross plus nothing, that's everything. And maybe you're sitting here as a follower of Jesus and you just wanna to say today through prayer, God, here's my declaration. My declaration is that I have been crucified with Christ. Thank you. I trust in that and I trust in that alone. And you're sitting here saying, God, that's, that's what I'm gonna live my life as coming from your approval. I wanna lead you to prayer. If you're sitting here and you're a believer and you say, this is my declaration today. Scott, I want, I want you to include me in this prayer. Just lift your hand up. Come on, B, but mine's up first. I'm saying, man, this is my declaration. Hands up everywhere. Lord, we thank you so much that we can literally stand on the truth that the cross of Christ and nothing else is what makes us righteous and acceptable in your sight. So Lord, we just choose to exhale. We have nothing to prove. We just live from already being approved by you. We thank you for it, Lord. With our heads still bowed and eyes closed, give me the opportunity to speak to you for just a moment. Maybe you're sitting here today, and if you're honest, we were sitting, if we were sitting across the table having a cup of coffee, you'd say, Scott, man, let me just be honest with you. I don't, I don't know much about this whole Jesus thing and, and I don't have a relationship with him I don't have a relationship with God but yet there's something in you today that is just kind of stirring in you I would say maybe it's the spirit of God himself wooing you toward him and when you and I begin to see Jesus on the cross more clearly our only reasonable response is to say yes that's who I want in my life 
God, I want to live from your approval. Jesus, would you change me? Would you save me? Would you forgive me? I don't want to just come to church some afternoon and not have anything impact my life. I'm going to walk out of here knowing that God is on my side and I have a relationship with him. You're sitting here, your head's bowed, your eyes closed, and you say, Scott, I don't know. I, I don't think I have a relationship with Jesus, but today I'm making a stand. I'm not here to impress anybody or live for their approval, but I want to live from God's approval. I want to ask Christ to come into my life right here, right now, today. Your head bowed, your eyes closed. You say, Scott, that's me. As you stay in your seat, say, Scott, would you include me in that prayer? I want to ask Christ in my life today. If that's you, lift your hand up. Just be bold and say, yeah, that's me, man. I got three hands, four hands to my right. Awesome. Two more over here. One more over here to my right. Who else, man? Include me in this prayer. I want Christ in my life today. Right here in the middle. Praise God for you. Awesome. Right here to my left. Right, another one to my left. Congratulations. Glad you're here. Three more people over here. Fantastic. Who else? One right back here. This is my declaration. I want Christ in my life. I'm going to live from his approval. Let your hand back there. That's phenomenal. Sir, I see your two hands right here to my right. Another one. Okay, put your hands down. Please, let me say that. I'm sorry. I need to say that more gently. Can you put your hands down for a moment? Because I get excited in moments like this. For you that call Cornerstone Church home, there has been probably 40 people, I'm guesstimating conservatively, that have done this this morning, said, I want this Jesus who hung on the cross for me, and I want to give my life to him starting today. And before we pray, I want you to know that you are part of a phenomenal church that God is using to transform people's lives. You should be proud of it in a very healthy way, excited about it, and it's just a tremendous opportunity to be some normal Joe praying right here, but this is part of what you are making happen through being part of Cornerstone. It's phenomenal. Let's pray. Bow your heads, close your eyes. If you lifted your hand, I want you to lift your voice right now to him. In fact, everybody in here, let's pray this together, a prayer of surrender. Say, Father God, today I surrender my life to you. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. I believe you're the son of God, that you've risen from the dead. Would you forgive me of all my mistakes, of my sin, be the leader of my life, be the Lord of my life. Thank you that I'm a child of God. In your name I pray, amen. Put your hands together to celebrate what God's doing in here. Phenomenal, congratulations you guys, awesome.